What's going on, everybody? You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here with the Middle Tech Podcast. We just sat down with Demetrius Gray of Captain. So we previously had him on the podcast to talk about his previous startup, WeatherCheck. And he's now taking those learnings and all of those insights he got from the industry, which is natural disaster uh, relief and the whole contract environment around natural disasters and funding contractors and helping consumers get their home back to where it was before the natural disaster. He's taken all those learnings and has built a fintech company that he's raised over $100 million for. And he talks all about that fundraise, the product they're building, and a lot of takeaways that the Kentucky ecosystem uh, needs to hear about what he thinks that we need to be doing better and his experience of really building a company in a remote fashion, but really uh, both in Kentucky and San Francisco. And uh, I thought that was eye-opening. Uh, one, he's building an awesome product, but two, it was eye-opening because of his new perspective that he's got, one, on Kentucky, but two, how we interact with the rest of the United States, especially the coast. Yep. Um, I'm going to go and say this has been one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded in, in quite a while. So major shout out to Demetrius and, and what he's building and uh, some of the wisdom that he he dropped not only just about building a successful startup, but building a successful startup and how to look at that if you're based here in Kentucky. Just so many, so many good lines of thinking and kind of we called it plain speak in the episode about this is the way things are. And it might not be the exact narrative that we want to tell ourselves in Kentucky sometimes. But if you want to build a successful company, a lot of what he says in this episode is just really sound, solid advice. A lot about the relationships that you build, making the world a smaller place uh, and the reputation that you build as you build the, these companies that you start. So I'm, I'm going to let the episode kind of speak for itself here. So before we dive in, I always want to get a quick word from our sponsors. Middle Tech is presented by KY Innovation, the Kentucky Cabinet for Economic Development's Entrepreneurship and Innovation Partner. KY Innovation exists to support and develop Kentucky's startup ecosystem, and we are proud to work alongside an organization whose mission aligns so closely with ours. If you're a founder building in Kentucky, you need to check out the resources that KY Innovation has to offer. You can find more information at kyinnovation.com. We are also sponsored by Bolt Marketing. As a business owner, you're forced to wear multiple hats, but you should be focused on growing your business while you let somebody else handle your marketing. Our friends over at Bolt offer a full services from websites to branding that will help you transform your marketing and grow your business. To learn more about how Bolt can help you with your business goals, you can check them out at buildwithbolt.com. Bolt.com. We are also supported by Endeavor Midwest. Operating in 40 countries around the world, Endeavor selects, supports, and invests in the world's top founders driving job creation, wealth creation, inspiration. In 2021 alone, Endeavor entrepreneur-led companies provided more than 3.4 million high-quality jobs, 42 billion in revenue globally. Endeavor's Midwest office supports companies like App Harvest, El Toro, Interapt, and many more. You can learn more about Endeavor Midwest, Endeavor, and their venture finalist at Endeavor.org. All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Logan Jones here with Evan Knowles. And today we are thrilled to be joined by uh, a previous guest of ours that is coming on to tell us about a new company that he is starting currently called Captain. Uh, so Demetrius, welcome back to the podcast. We're so happy to have you again. Thanks so much, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, so for a quick refresher on uh, when we had Demetrius on in the past, uh, I should have looked up the episode number and the season number so I could remember it. It's been probably two or three years ago now, uh, we originally had Demetrius on to talk about weather check. Um, so let's just start the conversation real quick by uh, going over your, your background briefly in terms of you know where you're from, and then let's lead that into weather check and give the audience just a quick recap uh, of what you're doing at weather check, and then we'll, we'll get into what you're doing currently. Yeah, so, um, you know, accountant by trade um, from a little town in Western Kentucky, uh, Madisonville, um, and I moved to Louisville to go to college um, in 2006, and uh, frankly, met my wife here and and uh, have been in Louisville ever since. You know, lived at a number of other places, uh, you know, as sort of second homes, but uh, have called Kentucky home for a really long time now, and really started this entrepreneurial journey with a construction company back in the day, and really started to get a glimpse into storm damage restoration 
um, as a sort of line of business. My first company was in the roofing business and then uh, structural skylights. And, you know, all throughout that process, eventually ended up seeing that, wow, like this is in desperate need of some technology. And, um, you know, had a chance to go through a um, early stage technology company called Eagle View Technologies, who was basically flying planes over the U.S. Um, and that was my seeing an engineering department of software developers, you know, crunching away. And I was like, man, amazed at the fact that they're charging us $75 per report. <laughs> and there are 30 people in a room in Bothell, Washington. It sort of just started to make me think differently. It sort of goes to like the whole, you know, you you don't know what you don't know. Um, I'd never seen that before. And um, so uh, fast forward, I started looking at that business, that restoration business, a little sideways, like, hey, can we get some engineers in here and start working on this? And so I built WeatherCheck out of that, which was solving a problem that we had, which is I always wondered, like, why is it that policyholders don't know that they should file an insurance claim? after a hailstorm or a windstorm or whatever it might be. The status quo was to go knock on every single door in a town <laughs> and basically tell them, hey, you know, your insurance company will pay for this, you know, hail damage that you have here. And, um, and you know, uh, some of the best inventions are born out of sheer laziness. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's just like, man, it's hot out here in Kentucky or Mississippi or Alabama, wherever the heck we were. And you just didn't want to go door to door. And uh, so we built WeatherCheck out of that. We um, raised $2.8 million specifically to build a damage prediction engine that would send text messages to policyholders uh, before and after events um, to say, hey, there's something on the way. But also, hey, that thing just happened. We see you. It may have caused some damage. Here's what you need to do next. And you know, that was uh, a, a heck of a ride and uh, became Kentucky's first uh, Y Combinator backed company and uh, had some really great investors in that venture and, uh, you know, naturally progressed into what we're talking about now. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, it's funny, there's been several weather tech companies come out of, of Volvo lately with uh, ClimaVision too. So have you connected with uh, Chris and that team at all yet? Love you guys are in the same building, aren't you? We're in the we're on the same hallway. Okay, <laughs> so I literally see him every day. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, walk us through that transition and what you learned from you know WeatherCheck that informed Captain, because I'm sure there was a, a transition there that you said, okay, well, um, let's let's figure out this other angle and, and do Captain. Well, you know, for me, I've had a long commitment to investors, right? Which is to say that, like. You know, the status quo in startup land, and, and everybody doesn't take this view, but I've always said that, look, our investors won't lose when they write us a check, you know, and or or they'll at least get their principal back. And for every company that I've started, that's always been the case. And so we were very strategic about saying, OK, we know that some of the learnings that we learned between WeatherCheck and Captain, um, we're going to make sure that we are able to make those previous investors whole. And so we did exactly that. And what that has led to is a number of investors who said, okay, I want to re-up. I want to write you a bigger check this time um, into the next round. And so it made, you know, raising for captains so much easier um, because it was two separate companies. And frankly, we were very explicit with them when we felt like, you know, weather check maybe wasn't working. You know, the pandemic had a, a very heavy impact on that business. Um, because obviously non-essential workers, uh, you know, were restricted. People don't want you coming in the house, you know, all these other sort of things. Insurance companies are squeamish, you know, any sort of market volatility with insurers, like just sort of adds insult to injury to them. And they're like, oh, let me go back into my shell and <laughs> never come out. So in a lot of ways, you know, we had some really good learnings there around like just being upfront and explicit about like, hey, I don't see a path any longer to a multi-billion dollar exit. And so we need to do something different. Here's what we think the new opportunity is. Sometimes, and this was certainly true for us, was that we'd already pivoted so many times that at some point the investor gets a little exhausted <laughs> with the pivots and so they're like, how are you going to give me my money back? You know, how are you going to pay me back? Um, and, and in some ways, like, 
that wasn't the exact rhetoric, but it was certainly the expectation that I had set with our investors. And frankly, I wouldn't have it any other way, but to, you know, sort of say, you know what, when you invest with Demetrius Gray, you're not going to lose. And so then that makes the the next deal, you know, frankly, just easier. Yeah. And talk a little bit about uh, this round that you you just raised with uh, with Captain. So I know it was structured a little bit differently in terms of raising some debt and raising some venture capital. Uh, so walk us through the round you just you just raised and how that capital is going to be deployed for Captain. Then we'll, we'll get into kind of what Captain's doing, because that's obviously relevant to that whole conversation as well. Yeah. So we raised one hundred and four million. Now we have raised one hundred and seven million. And that was specifically focused on financing. So we needed venture debt to do this thing that Captain does. You know, initially we went out and and frankly, that whole process started with a conversation in Louisville. Uh, I was having drinks with um, talking about I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin miner and uh, I was having drinks with Stacy Griggs and we were talking uh, uh, Stacy Griggs of El Toro um, about like my mining operation in Western Kentucky. And, and um, he's like, oh, you know, we were going to do maybe a larger deal where we started to put uh, Bitcoin miners at the wellhead at, of natural gas wells. And he invited another guy into the conversation, which was a guy named Calvin Wells. Um, and Calvin, I didn't know at the time, was the guy that debunked the fire festival, which, you know, so I, you go to, back to the Hulu documentary, like, that is the guy, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not a finance guy. I, I didn't say, don't think that I have that skill. And so I just knew that like, we needed a lot of cash, you know, $25 million at least. Um, called a text Calvin after our meeting through Stacy and, and said, Hey, um, you know, I need to pick your brain. And, um, he could say, call me in 15 minutes. I call him in 15 minutes. He goes, you know, Demetrius, tell me you're calling me to figure out how to finance insurance claims. And I was like, okay, this is evidently supposed to happen, given that he's already thinking this way. And so, you know, we went out to market and um, it turned out that the market was so ripe at the time that not many people would do a deal under $100 million. So... We went out to raise 25 million. Most people said, can you get to 50? Can you get to 100? Can you get to 80? You know, that's how the conversation went. Is there a chance you could get up to, I mean, we had folks, can you get up to 300? Um, and so we ended up with almost $700 million in term sheets um, for a company that hadn't actually made any money. And in some of those conversations did not yet even exist. Uh, wow. <laughs> and so... But then one of the requirements was once we decided on a term sheet, they were like, okay, we need you to have some equity capital in there. And so um, NFX and GGV came in. And again, you know, NFX, um, that whole relationship was convoluted. Um, at Kelly Ivanye, of, uh, who's entrepreneur in residence at Amplify Louisville, uh, and a good friend of mine, we lived in the same building, basically was like, hey, you should pitch to super founders. In, at Floodgate. So I did and uh, made some friends there. And then they were like, hey, we should introduce you to actually a number of those super founders wrote checks um, into Captain. And eventually they were like, hey, you should meet Pete Flint. And I was like, oh, I actually already know him. I met him a number of years earlier. I just didn't really have that great, you know, good relationship with him to ping him up. And, um, you know, Pete then writes a term sheet from NFX, um, really in a total of six days, you know. And so I talked to all the partners and did that whole thing. And again, Kella uh, Ivani was also scouting, I think still does, scouting for GGV. And uh, he, you know, said, hey, I think GGV wants to look at this. And um, next thing you know, we had a check, uh, scout check from GGV, which... Is not even a seed fund. They're a Series A, Series B plus fund, and um, and it came directly from the main man himself, Hans Tung, um, and so all of that was super encouraging, you know, in that sort of fundraising process. Just like like using existing relationships to try to you know, continue to drive 
uh, drive at home. So yeah. you got the you got the capital, you got the relationships. Now now tell us how that capital is going to help you build you know the product and what that product is. So what are you guys solving for? So one of the things that we uncovered at WeatherCheck was that like you could tell people all day long that they had severe weather damage, but what really moved the needle was could you make them get them whole again, right? Like it didn't really matter that you sent them a notification. The text message was nice, but we had some like like a feedback loop that was sort of saying to us, hey, can you know, thank you for that message, but can you now help me find the contractor who's gonna rebuild the house or, you know? And it was all out of a mistake, frankly. The in- engineer at WeatherCheck used the wrong API key for Twilio. So, you know, there's one-way messaging and two-way messaging. <laughs> well, he used the two-way. And so whenever we would push out notifications to policyholders, we'd get a whole bunch of text messages back, <laughs> which was like people talking to us. And so it's sort of serendipitous, but it wasn't really our job. We weren't tasked to communicate back to them on behalf of the carrier. So we would ignore the text messages. But it was an interesting feedback loop. And it was the sort of thing that started to say, oh, well, in the event that this company doesn't work out, you know, we seem, think there's something in managing these claims. And so we started doing that in the later days of WeatherCheck. And um, our first claim that we ever processed was Suzanne Bergmeister, who was, uh, I believe, um, an entrepreneurship professor at UofL who owned a beach house in Surf City, North Carolina, that was um, damaged by one of the hurricanes. The one thing that really made that process go easy was that we we actually factored the, the insurance company's paperwork. So the insurance company generates this thing called a scope of loss, every single claim, property and casualty claim. And it tells all, the, all of what they're paying for and what they're willing to pay. But they don't give you all the money right away. And so we actually factored that piece of paper, found somebody who would do it. And that gave us all the money immediately. And the thing that we uncovered was that when you have all the money, you can control the entire market, right? You can get the materials you need fast. You can get the subcontractors that you want to come work for you. Because now everybody knows as soon as this job is over and I'm done, I'm getting paid. I get to move on to the next one. And so really, Captain is based around that premise is to say, you know what? Insurance payments can take, you know, 90 to 180 days or even years sometimes. And so what we focus on is building financial products so that their contractor doesn't have to wait to get paid. So we buy that receivable from the contractor and then we pay for materials, labor and fees associated with the said project. And then we get paid back from the insurance carrier and take out a percentage for out of the profits of the project and you know sort of on its nose is like oh that's very simple right behind the scenes it's very complicated to do that but it is one of those things that like we didn't know at the time that this thing that sort of thing is not done no banks finance insurance claims right and so um, that's how now captain is the largest pool of private disaster recovery capital in the entire country um, with over a hundred million dollars, you know, at our disposal, and you know, almost forty-four million dollars committed um, in under six months, and so all the fun stuff, you know, you get all the cool stats, but it's like just one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, some of this stuff sort of ends up slapping you in the face a bit <laughs> as you get in the process. You're like, okay, I thought I was smart. I wasn't that smart. <laughs> I just sort of stumbled into um, something that's a really big deal. And, um, you know, that's that's sort of how that whole process got started and how we came to build this particular thing. It's amazing how early fintech still is. You know, there's so many different little niche parts of the finance space or the business space in general that haven't been penetrated by fintech and it just makes things so much smoother so i want to dive deeper into some of that here uh, in a bit but uh, i do have a question around you know you guys are helping people in need around natural disasters so are you guys acquiring customers you know after a natural disaster or are you guys able to somehow uh, identify that there's a natural disaster coming and, and you know 
be get them prepared. So this kind of you know comes back to weather check. You know, how do you get that consumer to be aware of what you're doing without going door to door when a disaster you know happens? Well, you know, it's not a coincidence that NFX uh, is our investor as they're known in the industry for platforms and marketplaces, right? And so um, Captain really takes a platform-based approach, which is to say, you know, the early go-to-market strategy was to go get contractors and let the contractors go win the consumers, right? Um, as the product has continued to evolve, what we've done then is opened a new door, allowing the consumer to come directly to Captain and now matching them directly to contractors who are already in our network, right? So now over, I believe we have something like 75 approved contractors around the country, largely in the roofing category today, but that we had, you know, five to 10 contractors every week. And, you know, that is really how we specifically focus on that overall go to market, which is to say, we're a place where everybody can come. Really, you can think of us as, you know, the bank that is funding the climate emergency. And so all of the solutions and the lens in which we look at these problems is really typically through the financial lens, making sure that we can align the incentives so that, you know, all of this sort of renewable and resiliency work can actually take place. Because that's the sort of other sort of larger macro problem. When you look at like climate change, it's like, well, the incentives in a capitalistic economy don't actually always work to incentivize the all the right climate decisions, right? So you can love solar all day long, but if you can't afford it, then you're going to keep driving that gas-powered car. <laughs> you're going to keep buying from the utility. And so for us, when we look at it, we're looking at it from the lens of, okay, well, hey, you know what? There's an opportunity for you whenever you're replacing your roof. That seems like a great time to put on solar. Right. There's it seems like a great time to put on a hail resistant shingle. It seems like a great time to, you know, maybe lift your house after that flood. Right. But in order to do that, well, the financial products have to exist in order to make that possible for the consumer. And so and frankly, by putting those financial products in the hands of the contractor, um, you'll see more activity. And so that's really what Captain is doing. Yeah. And talk about the overall uh, addressable market with this. So I know when we talked on the intro call, you know, you guys are, are really just doing that kind of uh, allowing people to recover from disasters quicker, but it sounds like there's a, a much larger addressable market in property and casualty. So just talk about this market that you're going after and kind of how big you see it getting as you expand into all the different niches within it. Well, it's a great point. Like I, I think and sometimes I, I don't tend to like to think about it because sometimes it is so large. Like, it's like, OK, like I got enough heartburn around natural disasters here. But so like when you think about natural disasters, Insurance Information Institute estimates the total losses, insured losses to be about ninety two billion dollars at last count. Is that, is that right? per year or what's the time per on year? That? Per year. Now. If you adjust for inflation, you add another $10 billion in cost just from inflation to that 20, I think that's a 2019 number. And so the larger PNC claims category, like this is like auto claims and, you know, the kitchen sink overflow and now my floors are ruined, those sort of things is nearly 40, $450 billion, I believe was the last number I saw. And so... It's not a small number, right? And so that's the space that we're playing in. And um, frankly, uh, it'll take us quite a bit of time to capture even a small, minute portion of that, but uh, we're doing it. So like yeah. capture part of the natural disaster recovery market, and then you get these contractors used to getting cash up front fast, and then they're going to say, oh, I want this on all of my jobs. It, it, that's, that, right. like, that's kind of the way to summarize that. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I want to spend a, just a second longer summarizing what you're actually doing, like the benefit that you're not only providing contractors, which we've kind of hit on in terms of allowing them to get the cash to go out and do the job quicker, but also what you're doing for the consumer. Um, so we'll only focus on what you're focused on right now, which is the natural disaster part. But somebody has just lost their home or badly damage their home in a natural disaster. You mentioned it there. It can take 90 to 180 to even 
you know, a year until they're actually whole again. Talk about how much you're able to reduce that process just by allowing money to flow uh, in a much quicker way than it, than it previously was. Well, typically our projects are done once we buy the claim from the contractor. Um, normally the work is done within 20 days. Hmm. That's incredible. Right. So there is an eagerness because, again, it's about aligning the incentives. Because we're charging a fee for the amount of time <laughs> that are, they're using our capital, then the contractor has an incentive to go ahead and get out there and get the work done, right? And so that's a lot of what we sort of spend time doing is sort of making sure that the incentives are aligned so that everybody gets what they need. You know, I was we had a conversation with a, a survivor of the Marshall Fire in uh, Louisville, Colorado today and this property owner is has been out of her home or without a home for six months now that's being covered by an insurance company um, but that's only covered for another i believe 18 months you know and so you sort of look at it and you say if you don't have the skill and the ingenuity and the time and the know-how to sort of Get your house rebuilt. And even if you're not going to rebuild your house, get your lot cleared, get it remediated so it can be sold. Then you're you're going to be in a pretty bad position. And, and frankly, that's how people end up homeless. And so when we sort of look at this work, it really is for the consumer. Somebody stepping in and saying, oh, we know how to sort of be the intermediary to this. And we know exactly what's going on here because we see it thousands of times. Right. We know what this looks like and we know how to pull the levers to make it go faster. Right. And so um, in a lot of those cases, I mean, frankly, that that's the part that gets us most excited every single day is to see, you know, a policyholder who, frankly, you know, was in pretty bad shape. I don't have to tell you guys this, but it's like people don't make decisions in the same way after they've lost their house. Right. There's sort of there's a lot of PTSD and trauma. And so this, the simple decision of, you know, picking countertops, um, which normally would go pretty fast, right? Under regular circumstances, for some reason, it takes six weeks, right? Because I remember the old countertops and sitting my kid on the counter and, you know, all of these sort of things that um, is why um, stepping closer to the consumer, bringing them into the fold, um, after some of these events um, starts to matter so much. And and frankly, why we exist and why we're named captain, because at its core, everybody needs a captain for this process. The other piece I'll, I'll underscore is that insurance can be sometimes intentionally ambiguous, right? You know, people have bought this thing and, and they, they aren't necessarily always told all of the complexity um, that it, it, it exists to take advantage um, of the thing that you paid for. And so sometimes it's just helpful to have somebody else there to say, no, 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 here's what you do. You know, again, uh, when we've seen it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I want to dig in on one thing you mentioned was that the insurance company is basically um, helping uh, somebody have housing when their home has been destroyed. Is that, did you mention that, that they're basically taking care of somebody who doesn't have a home? They're paying for that. Are you, are you also saving insurance? Are you, are you, are you saving insurance companies money here because you're getting the person into a home faster and they're not having to pay for somebody's mm. housing in the interim? Is, are you also doing that for that stakeholder? I just wish you'd tell them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the whole line of logic is that if you can inject enough capital earlier on in the process, then you can actually make everything less expensive, right? The longer that these things go on, the more and more expensive that they get. And so if you can, and, and frankly, we call it, we say that it's Wall Street meeting Main Street. You know, um, we're really taking bank style capital and sort of saying, oh, hey, we know how to underwrite this claim. We know exactly what's going on here. Okay, we'll set it up and make sure that it runs perfectly um, and move from there. So one of the questions that I had after our intro call, and I think that's kind of a good segue into it, just talking about this massive amount of capital and, and underwriting these these deals, does the current state of like the economy or the the interest rate that you know the Fed is raising it right now, 
does that play into how you guys are getting your capital and, you know, running your entire business? Because I know that with the amount of debt that you guys have to buy these receivables and make this business operate in the way that you do, I would assume that that plays some sort of role, whether it's on down the line or whether it's directly into your business model. Does that affect things at all for you guys? It does, but really from a sort of market sentiment perspective. So frankly, right now, you don't want to be out trying to raise a Series A. Um, You want to make sure that you've got enough powder. I think at some point, VCs in particular will, um, their feelings around the economy will sort of migrate back to the status quo. And it's sort of just waiting that out. But I also think that they'll start looking at more revenue positive businesses, right? Or closer to near revenue positive. And so for a company like Capcom, that's a good thing because we're technically our debt is what's called a non-correlated yield product, meaning that it is not tied. Our success isn't necessarily tied to how well tech stocks are doing, whether it be on the S&P or the the NASDAQ. And so um, that's how we think about it, because these claims are always going to pay no matter whether the economy is good, bad, or ugly. And frankly, if they're not paying, I think we're all probably screwed. So, Yeah, yeah. for sure. Talk about your team. And then uh, I've had some people ask me this question of whether you're a Louisville or San Francisco or remote company. Tell us, uh, tell us about the team and where, where, you're, where you're based. Um, so, you know, this is all like, I think, second founder strategy, uh, second time founder strategy. Um, the reality is, is that you need to look like you're in San Francisco if you're going to do this well, because you need those relationships. You need the price of San Francisco. <laughs> you need the valuation of San Francisco. And so I, I know a number of people say, your address in pitch book is, you know, Walnut, California. And I'm like, you're damn skippy, <laughs> you know. And part of the reasoning for that is that, you know, I still have a place there. But our team is really concentrated with people from around the country. We've actually pulled a lot of folks from the New York area. And frankly, WeatherCheck was also um, largely remote. You know, we always had an office here. Today, Captain has an office um, in Louisville uh, at, at the Logic uh, workspace. And, um, you know, we still bring our entire executive team here every quarter. And so, um, and, and it, and frankly, it's a still a requirement that uh, for every new hire, they spend six weeks uh, in Louisville you know, when they first start. And so, you know, it's a hard question to answer in a post-COVID world. But, um, you know, I think most people maybe who are asking that question don't always understand the nuance of running an early stage startup, um, which is like, you've got to be both. And if, if you're going to do it well, I think... One of the things that I didn't understand early on, and maybe even when you and I were talking um, earlier on in the first episode, was like, like, what game are you playing? Like, are you playing, you know, D1 startup? Are you playing D2, D3? You know, where are you? And, and I would say that, you know, WeatherCheck was a great attempt at D1, but we were probably playing like it was D2, right? Um, Captain is certainly um, a D1 um, you know, a level startup and, and, um, and, and, and conversely, I, I'm comfortable now saying that I'm a D1 level founder, right? And so, um, but it's really important because your strategy around fundraising, your strategy around like how you approach it and whether or not you even care, right? <laughs> whether or not people care, whether or not you're, you look like you're in San Francisco or you look like you're in Nashville or whatever it means. The, you know, Michael Boone was our first was our first money into um, uh, weather check. And he told me something. He said, you know, this hundred thousand dollar check that I'm writing you isn't really so much for the product. He said the money is so that you can go make the world smaller. And so and and I, I that has always stuck with me because it, he was right. Right. In order for you to be a successful, you know, D1 level founder who's going to build something that creates outsized return, then you're going to need to cultivate relationships that go beyond the bench of the Midwest 
that go beyond the bench of, you know, even sometimes North America, right? And so, you know, if, if that's what you're trying to do, if you're just trying to get acquired, then maybe you do something different. But for me, you know, I'm trying to build something that uh, generations remember. I got uh, that experience, you know, early on in, in Simba's journey on our first pre-seed fundraise. Uh, it took me about six months to raise half our 600K round. So six months to raise 300K in, in middle America. And that was like a big uh, eye-opening experience. And I went out to the coast and got well-connected into the coast and to some of those scouts. And it took me three weeks to get the other uh, 300K. Uh, and part of that was the sophistication level of the investors on the coast. But also part of that was just the amount of capital and the ability to move faster. And that was an eye-opening experience that, uh, you know, I'm glad I got that early in our journey because that that's going to inform how I build the company from this point forward. And that, it, it was eye-opening the difference. And I think you're 100% right, is that there are levels to this game and you better align with the right level if that's what your intentions are uh, to, to align with uh, whatever those incentives are. Uh, and so I think that's a good point. And, um, you know, founders need to think about that when they go into their first early stage fundraises on, you know, where they take capital because that affects the second round too. And if we didn't have those early investors in our first round from the coast, then I'd have to go find them on the second round. And it'd be, you know, just as just as hard to find them on the second round. Um, but we, part of that was I mentioned sophistication and there's not a lot of fintech in middle America and especially not Kentucky. We're Simba's building a fintech application uh, for the real estate space. And when I got to the coast, they're like, oh, this is super intriguing because they understood fintech and that we were doing something uh, valuable. But the investors in Kentucky really didn't understand it as well. And I want to kind of bridge this to talk about fintech because we mentioned earlier on this episode that it's in such the early innings. It's, it's growing so quickly. You're seeing so much capital and uh, attention flood into that space. Uh, from your perspective, why do people need to pay attention to fintech and where, where do they need to be paying attention to it? You're right. I mean, it is early. And I think there's so many niche product offerings to your point that people just haven't really thought about. But I also think the emergence of debt and alternative and venture backed debt is a game changer. Like as companies get more comfortable, and I think it's probably one of the byproducts of a, of a pandemic and printing so much cash, right? Is that now deals were getting funded that otherwise wouldn't get funded. I don't think that's incredibly, incredibly bad for the economy. But additionally, there's more capital sitting on the sidelines looking for yield. And so now some of these more creative things that were largely capital intensive before, whether it be you know, captive insurance or MGAs or MGUs or buying YouTube uh, rights and all these different sort of things that venture debt's involved in, um, I think significant opportunities um, from my perspective and why you sort of should lean in. And so I think that's where you get to be creative. So for us, you know, like nobody had really given much consideration to the notion of factoring insurance claims. Right now, my publicist says that we shouldn't use the term factoring. Um, you know, we should say purchase receivables. But you know, our goal is not to be onerous in our approach to using that mechanism. It really is to say, hey, there's a different way of doing this um, that makes it better, and that's I think where the traction comes from. One of the things that I consistently noticed while I was in Y Combinator, and I think in our batch there were almost 200 companies was that I would look at a business and I would tell my my buddy Brian, who's the founder of Doppler, and he's raised, I mean, I think probably $30 million or something like that. And uh, I would say, you know, you know, there's really not any really new business. There's only like a few business models, right? And so you can look at like how it's dressed up and you could put lipstick on the pig and do all those things. But really your ability to pick and choose a company is really predicated on your understanding of the different business models that exist and how they apply. And so, you know, of all of those companies that are there, then you, then you make a bet on execution, right? Um, and so when you think about like the Midwestern investor, it really is not a byproduct of willingness. Sometimes it's a byproduct of, of practice, right? And exercise. And so like to my earlier point around like, like a D3 versus a D1 uh, founder, sometimes you have D3 investors, right? They 
sometimes present like founders who are trying to play D1, but you're like, man, you get out here with LeBron, it's over, right? Um, and in the same way, like a number of investors, if you got out there with, you know, Mark Andreessen or Ben Horowitz, it'd be over with, you know? And so like, that is how I think about some of these things is it's really more about aligning the type of company that you're building with the type of investor and making sure that you guys meet and see eye to eye. Um, the, the, the interesting thing, the truth of the matter of the Midwestern investment market is that it follows, right? And so the best thing that we can do as an ecosystem is tell the truth, number one. The truth is you got to go to the coast. That's, but, but it's not like it used to be. Like, it's not where it's like, oh, hey, you moved your entire company, right? That's not the case anymore. It's like, hey, do I know you? Like, and, and I think it's, the, frankly, one of the things that we as Midwesterners excel at, right? And, and I think some, some weeks, Louisville anyway, is a part of the Southeast. Other weeks, it's a part of the Midwest. Um, we'll take either. I think it's true for both folks you know, in this flyover sort of space is to say, man, we do relationships really well, go make the world smaller, and then align yourself with the investors that, that you believe matter. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you on you gotta go to the coast, because uh, if you don't do it in the early stages, you're gonna have to do it later in the stages, because there's not enough capital in Kentucky to do it. So if you're gonna be successful, you gotta start building those relationships early, and understand that, you know, investors in Kentucky, uh, they're one, you mentioned it earlier, behind the times on valuations. So if you want to, you know, maintain as much of the business and retain as much of that as possible, you know, you're going to have to go to the coast and get that valuation you want. Uh, but two, you know, you mentioned it there, and I think this is a great point. You want to align your business with the type of investors that can get you to that next stage and connect you to the right people. You know, frankly, it depends on what your business model is. You know, there's not a lot of that in Kentucky. There are several in Kentucky, but there's just not as much density uh, with that on uh, as there is on the coast. You mentioned something I want to dig uh, again on the fintech side of things is that you mentioned that you want to become like a bank for the specific niche you're, you're serving, contractors, uh, in the case of natural disasters. I've been really intrigued by the fact that um, I believe there's going to be a niche bank in every industry. And uh, the banking system was not built to serve niches. It was built to serve like general publics and generalities. And what you start to see is because all these things are becoming APIs, you can go extremely niche to a very unique user with banking products that's built around them. And that's a huge trend happening, uh, and you guys are doing that. Uh, what is what is your commentary on that, and what you believe the banking space will look like in the future? Because what I what I predict is that there's be you know these big service providers and like infrastructure, which are the traditional banks that have been around for a while, and they're just like a back end. And then what people are really interfacing with are companies like Captain or in our case Simba. And it's a banking product that is their user experience, but the back end is, is still a traditional bank that they might not even know is JP Morgan Chase. They think it's just captain. Uh, talk about what you're seeing in that space, because this is a big emerging trend of banking as a service and just banking as an API. So t tell the audience from your perspective what you're seeing. Well, I, th I think your view of it is spot on, truthfully. I mean, I, I was on a call with a major bank and actually not even, you know, they're major for our region. Um, but that is exactly how they're thinking, which is that they are the capital, right? And as long as they can get their head around what it is that you're doing and how you're doing it, then they're going to lend you capital so that you can go do what they would traditionally have to do with every single consumer, right? And so to your point, you know, I think uh, it's coined, the phrase is coined as rent a charter, um, you know, a rent a bank, and um, you know, and and those are firms like Cross River and Tab Bank, and um, you know, all of these others that are out there. I mean, locally, Republic Bank has a practice that does something similar, and so, um, and frankly, all of them have been absolutely wonderful to work with. Um, you know, as we've sort of, you know, engaged in the process of trying to figure this thing out, and so. You know, not too much commentary there, because I think you've sort of articulated in the perfect fashion, which is to say that all of these things are happening on the back of 
fintechs who are saying, okay, I can better understand this. I, I've taken the time to learn it. Um, I've taken the time to understand what the incentive is. Now, it all goes back to yield, though. You're not going to see the emergence of anything special outside of yield, right? And so, but what I also think is interesting is this notional value of um, the third-party payer, right? Um, and, and that's where Captain's line of sight is, is that part of the reason we can do what we can do is because we're not using the credit worthiness of the contractor or the policyholder. We're looking at the insurance company and we're saying, oh, you're credit worthy, right? And so how often is that true that, oh, the bank um, is credit worthy, a government or municipality is credit worthy? And so our ability, and a lot of times an employer is credit worthy, right? And so our ability to attach to their credit worthiness is really what payday lending should have been, right? It should have been like, oh, you work for Amazon? Well, we know they're going to pay, right? Or you work for Ford? Or you work for, just, okay, keep your job, <laughs> you know? Um, and those are the sort of things that, um, you know, I think are real huge opportunities that exist um, out there in the fintech sector because, there's no shortage of need for capital, right? People still want to buy stuff, even in a recession. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. The question, last question for me on the fintech topic is, uh, what's the most difficult part of being a fintech? What, what's like a downside that you've noticed maybe to date, if there is one? The transactions and the legal fees. Yeah. A lot of compliance. Um, yeah. So much compliance. I think that's the thing that is just like, I mean, like, you know, you're still trying to be agile. I mean, we have a general counsel um, and, you know, it's a compliance officer on staff of a team of today. We're a team of 13. And it's just like, you know, basically you have somebody, you know, telling you no all day long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's um, but 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 it's also to put rails around, you know, that hundred million dollars in cash that you got sitting there. Well, I think the the conversation around fintech is one that uh, just by being friends with Evan and listening to him talk on this podcast is really captured my attention a lot. And my dad's also in banking. So it's been fun to take a lot of what I learned from these types of conversations and be like, this is what's kind of going on in the in the entire space. Well, I think just, it's, we just had the CMO of Pipe on yeah, the podcast. Super too. interesting. Uh, uh, Pipe's, yeah. you know, one of the, the yeah. uh, shining lights in the space. For sure. Say. Yeah, you know, I actually, when I started Captain, I reached out to Harry Hurst and, you know, I was like, hey, you know, like, what do you think? Well, and, you know, this is a, just a general hack. Like when you're starting a business and you think, um, you know, some company, some adjacent company might go into the space. I directly asked him, I said, hey, is this something that you'd be interested in? Right. Do you think your company would ever go here? And, and you know, and I remember asking um uh, Patrick Collison, the same thing of Stripe. It's like, hey, like this, these insurance payments, are you ever going to touch those? He's like, never, you know, like, <laughs> so, so, you know, sometimes getting that early green light now, obviously everybody can't talk to, you know, Patrick. Well, Collison next time you talk to him, ask him when they're going, if they're going public, <laughs> ask him when we can all, <laughs> ask him when we, we can all get a piece of Stripe because I want a piece of that. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I love it. Yeah. No, FinTech, like I was saying, is just, so, so interesting right now. So just a note to the listeners, um, just pay attention to the space, pay attention to what's being built. Um, this is a great episode to really get your feet wet with kind of the, the minutia that's going on in the space and how it all works. And Evan has done even a weekend thoughts about it. But as we kind of transition from the FinTech conversation, uh, I want to bring it back as we like to do at the end of these episodes to this region. Um, so just give your commentary on the, the general landscape of the Kentucky startup ecosystem and, you know, what you believe needs to change. You've kind of seen uh, both sides of the startup startup grind in terms of building in Silicon Valley and building in Kentucky. And now, you know, you're a, a, a multiple, you've founded multiple companies. So uh, from your perspective, just give us your general commentary and, and what you believe needs to change. Well, I mean, I, I think I, I'm not entirely encouraged. Um, <laughs> it feels like a, a, a bad case of hot potato, um, you know, um, it seems like the same thing regurgitated with the same people playing musical chairs 
between roles, right? You know, and so, um, and and a lot of those people I I enjoy. Um, they're great people, but in terms of an overall strategy for innovation throughout the Commonwealth, I would sort of say that there isn't much of a strategy. Um, you know, I've long been advocating that uh, for all of the dollars that we spend on you know programming and ecosystem building, it seems to me that the only people that really benefited were the you know uh, consulting firms and um, you know the like. I you know there there are really great programs like the Vote Awards um, locally in Louisville that I think have have gotten it right, but they need to lever up right. It doesn't need to be a $25,000 check. It needs to be, you know, a $250,000 check, you know, and I know that they're working on that. And so um, I'm serving on the selection committee this year. And so and then in addition to that, it's like, look, like, don't spend any more money on on local events and commercialization and all those other things. Spend dollars on getting founders to the coasts, right, where they can build relationships. You know, Kentucky, as an example, has an amba- Kentucky ambassador to Japan. Well, we need a Kentucky ambassador to San Francisco, um, a Kentucky ambassador to New York, right? So that those relationships can be cultivated. Because if you went to some of these executive directors and you said, well, who do you know in the Bay Area? The reality is they don't know anyone, right? They don't actually have any relationships. And so that's where the value is. And so when you know, Evans raising or Logan or whoever else is raising in this community, whether it be a venture back thing, whether it be an, an, an actual fund, uh, whether it's even John Wilmoth, who's raising, you know, a fund for Poplar, right? It should be very easy for us to sort of say, plug into the network and say, who do you know any LPs? Where are the institutional investors? I want to raise a fund. I'm going to put a syndicate together. You know, those are the sort of things that I think are impactful. Um, and really move the needle. I do think that Kentucky has a long history of just employing people. And so um, we set, the rhetoric is, oh, this is about founders, it's about innovation, it's about these things. But I think probably if we're being, you know, 100% truthful, most of these programs are about making sure that those people have jobs, right? And I'm okay with that too, right? I think what I'm not okay with is putting founders in this sort of ecosystem and letting them spin around for a long time, all in the for the sake of saying that we did something. I'm talking to the same people um, all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like don't put them, don't put, don't, don't. No, the founders shouldn't have to suffer just because we're just you know, we've created a social welfare state. <laughs> you know, and this isn't exclusive to you know innovation and startups. Um, it's probably true of many categories of government where there's government funding is it really is sometimes more about funding the program and employing people than it is about, you know, achieving whatever the end result is. And, and I, I hate that like saying this mean that somebody might lose their job, but I do think (laughs) that, that at the end of the day, we have to be focused on the real work. It would be no different than if I came to work every day and never funded anybody's insurance claim, right? Oh, I raised $104 million, but I never deployed any capital. Can't do that, right? We, there's a real thing that has to be achieved. And I think in a lot of ways, we have to hold people accountable to that, which is like, okay, who really got funded, right? Like, and who did you actually help, <laughs> you know, and and go from there and and... You know, I think they'll get better. I think they want the same thing, things that we want. I think that the incentives sometimes just, again, aren't aligned. And uh, so am I hopeful about Kentucky? Yes. I, I Listen, I, I'm tied to this state for better or for worse. Um, I think it's the place where I've chosen to raise my family. And so Kentucky gets me as a byproduct, <laughs> byproduct whether they do the right thing or not. But the truth is, is that it could be better. But I think it's founders like us sort of being, you know, plain spoken and just to say, no, today it's not good enough. And and there are a few things that would make it better. And it's a deeper bench of relationships um, amongst the people that Kentucky chooses to hire. It's interesting in the Bay Area, nobody gives a shit about any of this, really. 
you know, if you sort of went to founders in the Bay Area and were like, hey, what do you think of can the state of California's innovate? They'd be like, what? Yeah. They didn't even, yeah, they don't even know that there's a program. And so in some ways, I sort of would say the same thing to Kentucky founders. Screw it. Don't worry about it. It's not a focus. And, and don't spend your time there. I talk to founders all day long. You know, I'm sure you do, too. You know, it's like that's the ecosystem you need to be in if you really want to do this. Now, I'm convinced that some of this is about like like trying to grow founders, which I'm not entirely convinced can be done. You know? I sat in front of GSE uh, last week and said, uh, in front of all the GSE instructors, which you know I was careful of how I navigated this, I said, listen, you can't teach any of this. Entrepreneurship in no way, shape, or form can ever be taught. And the only way to learn it is to be in the trenches and know what it feels like and to learn from those mistakes. And, you know, you can take an entrepreneurship course in college all you want, but if you jump in the trenches, you're not going to be ready for it. And the only way you get ready for it is by practicing it and learning from other people's experiences and, and like getting inspired. You know, That's there's right. no template to any of this and you're, you're right. But uh, we got to start telling people that more because I think you're right. There's just a lot of educational programs in the state to bring up entrepreneurs. And I think we just need to figure out how to throw them in the trenches. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, a better, you know, more well, effective ways to just throw them in. If you get companies actually funded, then funded companies hire people who are likely to be employees or founders. Right. So like if you sort of look at the ecosystem of San Francisco, it's like, you know, all of my friends, you know, I, I have a roommate out in San Francisco and uh, he's now at Pear VC, but he was one of the early employees of SnackFast, right? And that's the sort of ethos of how startups work is that, you know, and you look at somebody like Ramiro Gandera, um, who worked at WeatherCheck and then moved from WeatherCheck to Captain and now runs a key. Right. You know, and it's like. And sometimes you have that explicit conversation. I have it all the time with employees who I, I know who are aspirationally thinking about founding a company. One of the best things that you can do is get an early stage role. In a company. Right. And not I'm not talking about Ford. I'm not talking about Humana. I'm talking about a company where you get to see everything. Right. Where you get to see what's going on in finance and what's going on in accounting, what's going on in sales and what's going on in ops. Right. That's partly why I think I've been successful is like I, in the early days, I worked for a small family office that was running a roofing business. And I worked directly for the CEOs, for two CEOs. And I saw everything. It was my first time being introduced to an Amex Centurion. Right. Like, oh, that black card. OK, wait, you can charge whatever you want. <laughs> you know, and, you know, sort of stuff like that. It just gives you exposure to know what's even possible. Right. And so that's how I generally think about, like, what do you do? You get people plugged into early companies um, and go from there. I love that. And I think it's a it's the right way to think about it. I, I mean, of course, the state is very well intentioned with these programs oh, sure. that they spin up and and where yeah. the money goes and everything. But. I think that, and I, I don't know if I understood this. I was very naive going through college about how I thought about getting into a startup or even founding a company straight out of college, which was in hindsight, not, you know, not realistic, but it really is those early stage companies. And you said it a little bit, a little bit earlier, if we can get those early stage companies funded, well, we have an access to capital problem in this region. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be actively trying to bring capital in from you know, Silicon Valley from other places where it's a more developed ecosystem for capital. And I, and I can attest to this firsthand. I was lucky enough to get involved with an early stage startup. I was, I think, employee number five at Lead Real at this company I'm at now. If I had tried to go out and start a company before this experience that I had at this startup, no way in hell would I have been successful. The amount of learning, it's like drinking from a fire hose is a good way of, of kind of describing it. And I think if the state of Kentucky wants to produce kind of that flywheel effect where we start spinning out founders who are truly qualified to go out and start a company, we need to find ways to get, you know, those companies that hire that young talent that allows that young talent to work closely with people who know what they're doing already. So I think everything you said there just makes so much sense. And um, I really just appreciate the plain speak that you kind of said that with, you know, a lot of people want to want to talk about the good things and not necessarily get into the weeds of 
what might not be going so well, but it's just, it's how we I want to, I want to ask uh, Demetrius a question here and mm-hmm. something I've noticed is, have you noticed that Kentucky tries to get the entrepreneurs in the room when they make decisions on where to put funding or how to start programs? Have you ever been asked to be in the room of those decision with those decision makers? Cause I haven't seen that. And I think that needs to be done more is, is actually get the people that are moving the ecosystem, the entrepreneurs in the room when those decisions are made versus, you know, the government. Uh, and these consultants, I, I haven't seen it, but I wanted to ask you that question because well, uh, you're I'll a bit take the inverse approach, which is to say there have not been enough founders who have been successful enough for that to be the case, hmm. right? For sure. And so, like, frankly, I I would say I'm probably one of the first that has gone out and raised, you know, I think probably myself, Cedric Francois. Um, who was, he was in, you know, healthcare and really wasn't fully embedded, um, in the ecosystem. Um, and then you have Nate Morris of Rubicon and then you have Brian, Jonathan Webb Harvest. And so those are really the, you know, probably four that you can sort of specifically look to and say, okay, like who's out actively raising it. And frankly, our story is still, you know, unwritten, but what, what we do know is that we'll be able to raise subsequent capital because we brought in tier one capital so early. Right. And so I think that's why that hasn't happened. You know, I think when people believe that it's serious, then they start, you know, getting permission. And I, the other piece is that, you know, founders are focused on building their companies. They're not really lobbying. But so I think in some ways, if, if founders, if that's what founders want, then what they need to do is actually formally organize, right? And sort of say, okay, hey, we're the founders in the Midwest and we're going to pay $1,000 a month or $500 a month out of our budget and we're going to hire a lobbyist and we're going to lobby the Ohio legislature and we're going to lobby the Kentucky legislature and we're going to lobby Indiana and we're going to get exactly what we want, right? Because now we're a constituency. Today, founders aren't really a constituency. They're just sort of made up of a whole bunch of different people, which frankly isn't that impactful. And so, you know, for all of, you know, I sit on the board of uh, uh, the uh, Greater Louisville Chamber, who has tech first, you know, it's a great effort, but it it is one of those in which it really has to start with the founders. And, um, you know, Frankly, there's a lot of things that, that founders can be doing. I don't necessarily know that this is always the highest and best use of their time. I think you're probably better off, you know, getting on an Allegiant airline flight um, out of Cincinnati, <laughs> flying to San Francisco, um, using Hotwire. Um, shout out to Carl, founder of Hotwire, and, uh, and who I happened to meet while I was in Aspen um, at someone's kitchen table. You know, it's like because people often the reason I keep echoing this is because people often ask me, well, Demetrius, you're always on a plane. You're always traveling. And and they say it almost like it's a negative thing. And what I'm consistently trying to do is cultivate enough relationships so that my companies get what they need. Right. Like. I, I need I needed a bank charter. Well, how do I do that? Well, I went to money 2020. And I and I didn't get a ticket. I like called up a few of our vendors and I was like, "Hey, anybody got an extra ticket that you can give me?" Right? And I wandered around and then I texted Pete. I'm like, "Hey, Pete, do you know anybody at Cross River? I'm trying to. I'm here in Las Vegas and I'm trying to meet these guys, but I don't know anybody. I'm there by myself, right? Walking around, a, you know, the Las Vegas Convention Center. Those are the sort of things that are the day to day, right? That like sort of nobody sees, right?" Like we closed a, a million dollar warehouse line this morning, right? That came from a conversation I had last week in Aspen, right? Some random banker who's like, hey, I've got some community reinvestment dollars that I'd love to be able to give. Here's what I need from you. Now I asked him for 5 million, but you know, beggars can't be choosers, <laughs> you know, but that's the sort of stuff, right? Like just make the world smaller, go out there and do your thing you know, put points on the board every day and then you're done, right? And then come back once you've got a billion dollars and tell everybody what to do. I love that. I, I think the kind of the advice that I'm getting 
you know, as you've talked throughout this podcast is if you can combine, if you can really bolster a good reputation, you, you mentioned that a lot in terms of the way that you interact with investors and the way you build your companies. And then you can combine that with relationships. I mean, you know, those two obviously go very hand in hand, but that's half the battle with, with being successful in starting a company is, you know, knowing the right people and building those right relationships. And then also just doing what you say you're going to do and, you know, having that reputation of, of being a really quality founder. So I think there's so many, so many good nuggets of information in here. Um, and I'm sure we could keep on going for, for more than uh, an hour that we already have. But uh, to wrap this up, I want to bring it back to Captain. Uh, we always like ending on a forward-looking statement. Uh, so just tell us your overall vision for Captain and the impact you want to see Captain have over the next three to five years. Listen, you know, I'd love to be able to say that that there are no climate disasters, but what we know is that there are going to be more of them. And so in three to five years, every single time, any policyholder in this country has a claim related to a disaster, Captain is somewhere in the mix, right? Because it's the safest and most secure way to put your life back together. And that is it, right? Um, And that means whether you're insured or uninsured, right? And so I'll keep that under my hat for now, but but we're gonna touch every piece and every part so that there really is a safety net um, after these reports.